Programming Throwdown, episode 91, Functional Programming, part two. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. So we, we uh, got a lot of feedback on um, our interview with Jonas Bonaire uh, a few months back. And a lot of you really wanted to know more about functional programming and really dive deep. And I'm really excited that we have Adam Bell, engineering manager and podcaster. Um, he's been an engineer for about 15 years. Um, he's done a lot of functional programming in his career. And yeah, we're going to sit down and have a chat about functional programming, about Scala, about um, a lot of these different concepts and really kind of dive deep, start from the basics and uh, get people kind of ramped up onto functional programming. So so welcome to the show, Adam. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Cool, cool. Yeah, so what is functional programming? So at its simplest level, it just means that you would construct programs only using pure functions. And a pure function would be something that, like a function in the mathematical sense. So it takes in inputs and it produces outputs and, and nothing else. So that means um, you know no modifying of of global state, no you know modifying data structures in place, no throwing exceptions, um, and maybe the more tricky requirement is uh, like no reading of user input, no writing of things into the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is kind of uh, a high level of what pure functional programming is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I think one of the things that I always found really tricky was was exactly what you said. I mean, at the end of the day, a program is going to interact with its environment. That could be reading from a file. Um, that could be writing to the network buffer or something like that. And I found that to be one of the hardest things to grasp when you join it with functional programming. So it's sort of like, how do you, you know, a file is kind of inherently stateful and it, it seems very natural to have this global file because you only have one of these files on your hard drive, right? And how do you get people from thinking in that way where they just have all of these globals for all of these environmental things that that are literally global? How do you get them from that mindset to this functional mindset? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, you can think of it as a design constraint that you, that you place upon yourself. So I think a common pattern you might see is having a very functional core of your program and then kind of an imperative shell around it. So if you're if you have the file as you as you're saying and you need to do a lot of transformations on it, you know, you may have uh, like functions that are ostensibly pure that take in, you know, lines of that file and do some sort of transformation. So they so they meet the the definition, but somewhere at the outside you have some imperative layer that, you know, does the actual IO. Um, and I think that it's a really useful design uh, constraint because what you end up with if, if you limit that imperative side effect-y stateful code uh, to the edges is, is a system that's very testable. Um, like all the parts except that imperative stuff can be tested quite easily. They just have, a, you know, it, for this defined output, do I get this? For this defined input, do I get this defi- defined output? And uh, so, so testing is easy. Uh, reasoning can be a lot easier in that world where you're kind of um, pushing towards functions. Um, so, so I think that uh, it, it's a challenge, but it's it's certainly one that has a lot of value, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good way of looking at it. Um, you know, I think when I started working in industry, you know, I, I, through my if you you can actually go and look at my PhD code. It's I'm not proud of it at all, but um, you know, it didn't really have any. Um, tests or anything like that because you're just kind of writing it by yourself. And so one of the real challenges when I got into um, you know, more of an industry role was was uh, kind of realizing that, oh, we have to really write tests because we're really depending. There's other people who are sort of depending on our code to behave in a certain way. We can't really use a lot of our own intuitions um, and spread those like through osmosis to the rest of the team. Um, and sometimes you find that after you've written something, you go to test it and you realize it's just, it's impossible. It can't be tested. The only thing you could do is just test main, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and then you say, oh, well, I have to modularize this. I have to break this down. And while you're doing that, um, you say, okay, I'm going to pull this function out and test it in isolation. But to do that, it needs to be context free, right? If you go to test that file, that function, and it, it calls a global and crashes, you say, oh, okay, now I need to take that global and pass it into the function so that I could pass in, you know, a, a dummy or something, a dummy object. Um, and what you're doing is basically you're, you're learning functional programming. So I think, yeah, a good way to get started, if, if you've been going through some tutorials, you're learning how to program and you feel pretty proficient at uh, procedural language, maybe C, C++, Java, um, I think testing your code, even if you, know, you might be the only person who will ever use it, testing it will be a really good exercise in software architecture. And along the way, you'll be forced to discover functional programming in one way, shape, or form. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think that it's been thrown at me before, like this statement, um, hey, this if your code isn't easy to test, then it's not good code. So I've, you know, people, especially like people who are really keen on test-driven development will say this, but the problem I have with this statement is like, it doesn't really tell you what to do, right? It's just like, it's just yeah, saying like, yeah. Hey, this code is bad. Um, so I think that uh, some of these functional principles uh, can guide you in that direction to say, like, no, I mean, I mean, you can even have things that are well tested that that just aren't good code because you have like crazy mocks and stub yeah. services and whatever. It's all pound defines compiling yeah. macros. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, to think about things as being pure functions uh, as much as you can. I think really guides you in in the right direction. Um, yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, so, what are the the functional programming languages that you use the most? Um, so, I spend my time uh, in my day job writing Scala, um, which is kind of I guess a, a multi paradigm language. It, it supports like you know Java style object oriented stuff as well as functional programming. And uh, so that's where I spend most of my time. Huge fan of the language. Um, and then, you know, I also am guilty of, of playing with a lot of other languages. So I spent time teaching myself Haskell. And um, that was a, certainly a great experience. And yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah, we had, yes. a, we had a lot of Haskell at uh, um, a place I used to work. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, but... Part of the challenge was we were building a software library for other people to use at the company. And mm. um, so what that meant is anyone who wanted to use this library um, had to learn Haskell. We found that to be really difficult. And so we ended up having to rewrite the whole thing in Python, um, which, is, <laughs> which is pretty sad because it looked, it looked pretty elegant in Haskell. But um, this is just the way of the world. Yeah. Um... I think that like Scala maybe is because it is multi-paradigm. Um, it it can, you know it can be used as sort of a a better Java, um, mm -hmm. and so that maybe makes it more palatable. That and and also like if you were building a library like in your specific case like there's nothing saying you couldn't use that from from any other JVM language. Yeah, um, so yeah. there's some benefits there. Um, I mean the the trade-offs are like you know Haskell is a very Hardline. This is a pure functional programming language. There's no uh, or very few like escape hatches, I guess. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, if you're trying to apply an FB style in a language that doesn't enforce it, um, I think that requires, you know, like obviously if the language isn't enforcing it, then that's kind of up to the team to say this is a goal, you know. Yeah, exactly. I think if you're building a service, you can get away with it because you can write a protocol and um, and yeah, you know. But if you're building a library, then yeah, I mean, the lesson I learned from that experience is, is, or really, I guess I wasn't the tech lead at the time, but the lesson the tech lead learned is to really know their audience. Um, I think that part, that, that's kind of a universal universal truism. So it, you said you're doing Scala. So yeah, as you said, I've, I've seen Scala applied in many different ways. So it's used in um, Spark, which is this you know, big data compute uh, platform. Uh, there's the Play Framework, which is uh, you know kind of a web service. Um, are you using any of those, or, or what are you? Uh, what's what's sort of the scaffolding you're using on top of Scala? So we have uh, we have one project that is a, a play project, um, but we, I mean, it's more of our legacy 
uh, product. So we, we're building, I guess, uh, web services. Okay. Um, and the, you know, the main library that we're using is called uh, HTTP4S. And it kind of is very much in the paradigm of, of using Scala to be uh, for functional programming. And uh, like it, it provides a really nice metaphor on top of, of working with a web service. So a, like if I'm writing uh, code to respond to some route that returns uh, like some user information um, that maybe gets aggregated from somewhere, um, in HTTP4S with this kind of functional model, I have a function that uh, gets in a, a data structure that represents a, a HTTP request and then my uh, the thing I return at the end of the day is a data structure representing an HTTP response. So uh, it kind of fits this function model, data in, data out. Um, that makes sense. What about contextual things like cookies? Are they are they in the request object? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, cookies do come in the request object. And I don't think that I don't think that violates the. Uh, like you're still getting everything in you need, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically, so the request is sort of this uh, multiplexer or this 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 structure that has cookies, has headers, probably has the then it also has the body with the actual. If it's a post request, it has the body, and then you can re- return some response that maybe has the status code and the the body as well, or something like that. Yeah, and then you may further subdivide this, right? Because you probably want to take some sort of structured data out of that uh, request and return some structured data and have ways to format it. Um, but at the high level, um, it's a very simple metaphor. A long time ago, uh, I worked in uh, ASP.NET, and they had this like page lifecycle model, and and I remember like, you know, I wanted to return that, you know, the status code was whatever. 409 or something mm-hmm. and you write the code to return it but it, in fact like behind the scenes there's some page lifecycle and it's already returned a response code where you are at right so you had to understand this like oh it's not just that I'm writing the things that return the body uh, there's this lifecycle that lives outside of my code um, oh and, geez and so that's very confusing and I think I mean most web frameworks don't work this way nowadays but I think it shows um, how like this functional model where you kind of get in all your inputs and then get out all your outputs is much simpler than something where there's some sort of you know extraneous information like in this case that the header is sent you know by overloading some other method in the framework or etc yeah yeah that totally makes sense I think you know, a lot of people might say well you could do functional programming in any language and you know ostensibly that's true um, I mean, you could you could fit the paradigm. It might not look that pretty. So, in the case of Java, all of your functions would have to be objects that contain one method. Um, mm-hmm. But it's doable. But the nice thing about um, a functional language is is that, as you said, it kind of it might not completely restrict you, but it it makes it very easy to write functional programming, and it makes it more difficult to write this. Um, sort of procedural programming, where you, or, or or just pure, um, yeah, pure like recipe-based programming, where you have all just global variables, and so it's it's like you can do anything, almost anything in almost any language. But it's really you know the, it's almost like being a, an artist, right? I mean, you could paint almost anything with any paintbrush if you had the dexterity, but certain paintbrushes will make it very easy for you to do certain strokes. Um, and so like any art, um, you know, certain languages and, and certain frameworks will make it very easy to, to craft your design in a certain way. And, and the functional programming way is extremely powerful um, when, uh, you know, as long as you aren't too dependent on, as I said, a lot of these environmental things. So a, a web service is a, is a great example because effectively bits come in, bits go out, and the only thing you really have to interface with from a real world standpoint is the network card, but that's going through so many layers of abstraction that you know functional programming is is a no brainer there. I think you know, this a lot of this big data transformation um, logic is also a really good candidate for functional programming, which is why you know SQL and and Scala now with Spark and a lot of these languages are are functional because 
they really excel in these environments. Yeah. And uh, like with Spark and, and data processing, I think one reason it's a really good fit is just like, a, you know, if we talk about immutability, that you're kind of um, not changing the data in place, but kind of uh, transforming it into a new uh into a new format uh, that's very like easy to split up and 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 distribute across machines and stuff. Um, yep. How do you deal with things like uh, databases, where you know database is this is this inherently sort of mutable object? Yeah. I mean, so if you talk about like you you were talking about Haskell, um, and Haskell has like this concept of like I/O where they kind of wrap anything that has an effect in this IO type and then instead of actually performing the action, right? The, the action is, um, it, it's not actually run until, uh, the end of kind of the, like until you fall off the end of main, right? It's kind of building, we're building up uh, a program that doesn't get run until the very end of the world. Um, and so that is a way, I, I don't know if that characterization makes sense, but that's kind of a way to encapsulate, uh, making changes to the outside world, while still living in this kind of uh, pure function world. And so um, what we do on our team is very similar. So we use like an effect type uh, called cats.io, I believe what it's called. Um, so methods that perform an action upon the outside world, like instead of having something that, instead of having something that goes out from a web service let me think of an example. So I call a web service and get back an integer, let's say, and then I need to use that in some further computation. So clearly there's some sort of interacting with the outside world there. Mm -hmm. So how we would handle that is we have this IO type. So instead of having this function that returns um, an integer, it returns like IO integer. And this this is somewhat similar to kind of like the async await pattern that you see yeah, in a like lot a of languages. Yeah, or yeah. promise, I guess. Yeah. So um, the the key thing is that it doesn't actually run until you tell it to run. So what we end up returning um, is is yeah, like a, a promise that hasn't been started yet. Um, and so you kind of compose these. Let's say we need to call out to a bunch of web services, like uh, you know, call get an int from this one and feed that into this one, so on and so forth. So we return these these uh, IO wrappers and we compose them together to say like, okay, when this one's done running, feed that value into here. Um, and, it, and it's very easy to compose. And then uh, at the end of the world, like at the end of our request chain, we say, okay, now run this. And so that lets us kind of encapsulate the dealing with the outside world into, into this kind of, uh, into this type that we wrap the results in. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, it's a really, one thing you mentioned, it's a really good point is, is, um, you know, functional programming, because each function is isolated, it lends itself really nicely to parallelism. So, mm -hmm. for example, you might write a simple script. Um, maybe you write a simple Python script that does some text transformation. And you have this huge block of text. Maybe it's some, um, you know, comma-separated value that you pulled out of this Excel spreadsheet you've been working on that has thousands of rows. And you want to do some transformation on all of the, on each line. Um, if you just do Python, you could do it. It, it might not take that much, uh, that many lines of code. Um, you just do a for loop for each line, do your replacement, right? But it's going to go through each line one at a time, right? Mm. But there's no reason it has to do that. It could have, you could have one process loading these lines from disk and then another process writing them to disk. And both of them can be going as fast as possible. Um, you know, with with Python, that's going to require setting up a thread pool. Uh, it'll probably have to be a multi-processing thread pool. You have to, you know, create all of these, uh, uh, you know, spawn off all of these tasks. You have to have a feature. You have to you have to do a lot of work yourself. A lot of the heavy lifting. Um, with with a functional language, they've they've designed it so that they do a lot of that work for you. Um, so for many of these languages, and now this is starting to make its way into a lot more than, than just functional programming languages. But yeah, this whole mm -hmm. future, promise, async, await pattern, um, that really came out of functional programming. And for example, you can write something that, um, that, that solves uh, you know, a game search, 
like solves a, a checkers game or something like that in Lisp, and it will automatically use all of your cores. You don't have mm. to, uh, you know, be fuddling around with thread pools and all of that yourself. Totally, it's interesting what you're saying about how this stuff is is kind of feeding out into the into other languages. Because if you think about like, um, you know, at some point, like Python having like map and filter and stuff was considered like that's functional programming, um, just because mm-hmm. that was an an idea uh, kind of feeding out and. Um, you know, um, generics like you know, like having a list of T instead of array list. Like this is an idea that was called uh, parametric morphism that originally came from Haskell and then yep. was was brought to Java, um, and you know, like lambdas obviously are quite yep. popular now. So I feel like there is a you know a conveyor belt of taking these ideas and and feeding them back to other languages because there because there is a lot of value um, in them. Yeah, I mean, especially, I mean, a web server is a great example where you might have one person who um, they, they're, maybe they're on their phone and they send you a request saying, hey, get me the weather. Um, and your service tries to return the weather, but that person goes under a tunnel and now they have no reception. And so you're just pinging this person saying, hey, I have your weather, I have your weather, come get your weather. And if, if everyone else, maybe you have a hundred thousand users on the site, if they're all blocked because of that, your website just no, it's not <laughs> going to be functional, right? Uh, yeah. No pun intended. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, but that's where again a functional language is really shine because that actually can be really tricky to get right. Um, you know, even if you have eight threads, now you can support eight people. If eight people, uh, you know, lose reception your website goes down. And if your website has thousands and thousands and thousands of people, that's not unreasonable. Um, functional languages are really, really good at having, they have their, these executors that sort of manage a lot of this. So if there's a, a function that's waiting on some hardware device or some IO, um, that's okay. The, the language, you know, the engine underneath the language knows to just put that one on hold, pick up a different one. And uh, that, that's that's the kind of thing that can be really really difficult to get right. So as, as we as we talk about a lot of these concepts making their way into other languages, um, keep in mind that that there's a lot of advanced techniques in the functional languages that still make them really really good for uh, you know much better at doing you know, these kind of tasks. Yeah, totally. Um, there was a, an example I remember from from when I was learning this. Um, that, that kind of made a lot of sense to me where somebody had like this, okay, here's like a, a service that, that processes uh, coffee, like you're buying coffee. So it, it takes in um, like a, a credit card and then, you know, it returns like some, you know, something representing a cup of coffee. And then, you know, in the body of this, it goes out and, and charges your credit card. Um, it seems like a reasonable solution, right? And then so, but obviously it doesn't kind of meet this this functional aspect we were talking about so if if you could transform it so you take in the credit card and you return both a coffee cup and then something that kind of encapsulates this effect so let's say it's just like a data structure that says you know charge this card so much money um and then somewhere you know obviously you have to actually have to apply this charge but the interesting thing is if you start thinking about adapting this um, now, what happens if, like, you know, we say you make the one solution, I make the other, um, and then, you know, requests come in, like, we want to buy, you know, a whole bunch of coffees, like, we're going to buy five coffees. Um, in the system where we're going out and, like, charging the card for every coffee that comes in, uh, I mean, that's not what people expect when they buy a coffee. Where the system that kind of returns these charge objects, you could imagine just a process that kind of merges them before it actually you know, sends off the request and is able to, um, like, batch the effects, right? So this idea yep. of making the effects, um, make, making the side effects you're going to do in the world, like, an explicit thing in the domain of your software. I mean, I think that's one of the kind of ideas, if that makes any sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think um, this will also you'll be revealed when people try to test things. So if you have, let's say you have some service that configures your router, Mm-hmm. Um, and you try to test it. So 
you know, if you if you have a unit test, which literally is going to go and configure your router, and you're going to run it hundreds of times, and people will be running it with bugs, well, you're going to have a, <laughs> a really bad router, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a scary network to be on. Um, so what you really want is 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 to mock that out, and um, and by not allowing, let's say, globals, for example, or by you know discouraging globals, you kind of force people to say, okay, this global router object that points to some driver um, that I got from Cisco, um, you know, I can't, I can't rely on that always being there or I can't rely on globals at all, let's say. So you know, maybe the first step is let's pass that in. And well, as soon as I pass it in, now I could pass in something else as long as it has the same signature. And that's kind of how people can, um, you know, that, that's sort of how like, I guess, well-tested or professional software works. Um, yeah. What about in terms of typing? So, you know, a lot of the early functional languages weren't typed. I mean, I'm thinking Lisp. I don't think Scheme is typed. Um, they're all weakly typed. Um, now, Scala is, is um, you know, strongly typed. They have the type inference engine. Do you feel like there's, uh, you know, what's, what sort of side of the coin are you on? Uh, I'm definitely on the side of types. And when I think about uh, the value that I get out of this proposition I was saying earlier, like, you know, a function takes some inputs and gets some outputs. A lot of the value I get is that the types kind of constrain what those inputs and outputs are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think types are super powerful. And, like, I think that functional programming uh, in Scala, in Haskell, in, you know, more researchy languages, um, pushing the type system to be able to better encode um, the constraints of what you're doing is is like a huge win in, in terms of software maintenance. So, yeah, like a, a sim- Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just I definitely agree. Yeah, I mean, we've, I've been burned so many times by weekly type languages that yeah, I'm kind of done with that. <laughs> yeah, and like um, if you look at like Scala or um, let's say Kotlin or even Rust or Swift, like one thing you're seeing is kind of using uh, like a result type or an option type or something rather than like a null pointer. Um, And like that, so that is another idea that's kind of, you know, moving out into the ether of other languages from functional programming. And just that thing is so, so valuable, right? Just to say like, hey, you're not going to get a null pointer here. You have to explicitly handle like if this is, you know, possible that this value is not defined, that's an explicit thing you need to handle. Yeah, I think yeah, I agree with you. It's so so useful. Um, I was there was an issue the other day I saw at work where um, there's basically a, a function that was meant to return some information, and it it didn't support null, um, and so we ended up getting a, a crash at some point saying that you know, someone tried to pass in a null, and it turned out that there were some circumstances where that object that we were returning it couldn't be. Uh, retrieved. So I mean, think about like a double delete scenario, where where two people are trying to look up an item and delete it at exactly the same time, and and the second process that arrives goes to get the item to delete it, and it's not there, right? Um, but because we explicitly ban nulls from in this particular function, we got an error. Whereas you know in other languages, I mean, at worst you return the null, you don't think it's going to be null, and then you start using it. And then you're lucky if the program crashes, like much further <laughs> down the line. I mean, that's the best case scenario. It could even get worse than that. You just get corruption and things like that. Um, yeah, so I think a lot of that stuff, and, and as you said earlier, it is making its way. Like now um, with C++17, there's the optional. Optional is now uh-huh. part of the language. So you could do optional foo equals bar, and then and then by default, bar is null. Um but yeah, there isn't support for, um, there isn't support yet for, for, I wonder if there's a way to, Patrick might know this, if there's a way in C++ to, uh, to just blow up, I guess you, you could have an optional where if you try to, actually, I guess optional will do that. If you try to access it, it will kind of blow up. But um, so, yeah. So in, in the new C++ one, if you access an optional where the value is missing, it throws an exception by default. But there are ways to, you're supposed to check it before you do that or say, give me this value or this default. Yeah. So yeah. this is yeah a common pattern. Like you'll see the same thing in Scala or, or Haskell or, or Swift, I assume. Um, and I think that, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, do you feel, actually you finish your thought because I have a, 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 a kind of a tangent. So, so I think it, like it, so this is a great idea. Um, and it ties in with kind of, uh, algebraic data types, which, uh, some languages are starting to get and generally, uh, you know, FP languages have always had. Um, but you can push these type ideas even further, right? Um, like the phrase that uh, I think comes from like O'Camel land is like make illegal states unrepresentable. Unrepresentable? Yeah, let's say it that way. Okay. Um, and so to use the type system so that, you know, you can't, um, like that you could enforce invariance in your code using the type system. Um, and having richer types allows you to do this more easily. Can you give an example? Is it sort of like saying you can't do three plus dog or something like that? Is that is that where you're going with this? So that's a super uh, simple one. But so um, if you have um, some types, if you have um, if you have a a sum type which is like a type that can be one of several values, right? So in Scala, I would have like Let's say I have like a sealed trait called animals, and then I have a uh, dog, cat, and and parakeet or something, right? And then somewhere else I have some code that does some pattern matching and pulls those apart and handles each case. Um, and then if I add a new value called uh, goat or something, the compiler will tell me, hey, you have not handled this case. This oh, type has four possible values, um, and you are not handling that case. Um, oh, another that. yeah. You talk about the the case classes. Is that the right word? The case classes yeah. in Scala. Yeah, and um, so I think this concept of like so that that's like uh, totality checking, um, and and some languages take it much further. But um, so when you're when you're writing that, actually, I think that I'm trying to think of another example. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll think of one. But yeah, using the type system to kind of uh, make it more apparent when you are doing something wrong, I guess is kind of the concept. Uh, hey, Jason, uh, not to interrupt you, but before you go off on that tangent, uh, do you want to take a minute to tell people about O'Reilly OSCon? Oh, that's right. Yeah, OSCon is coming up. Um, there's going to be a bunch of you know superstars there that you can listen to. They're going to talk about actually a lot more than open source software is, is going to be there. There's going to be blockchain. There's going to be AI. There's going to be cloud computing, distributed computing, be a bunch of different talks from people um, all over the world. Um, you can go to oscon.com slash PT for programming throwdown. Um, if you go there, you can uh, you get a special deal, which uh, which is which is really cool. Um, definitely check it out. There's going to be a lot of really interesting people. Do you know who else is signed up to uh, speak? So I actually would advise people to just go look at the, the website because there's a ton of people but I know that there's Holden Crew from Google, Rupa Dashir from CodeChicks, Julian Simon from AWS, Allison McCauley from Unblock Future. I mean, the list is really big. Like I, I was starting to like, oh, I'm going to read. Oh, wait, no, I'm not going to read all these people. There <laughs> are a ton of talks. So actually, I've never been to a conference where I know we were talking about this last episode. And, you know, you were talking about it, about what it is kind of like to go to a conference. And I feel like uh, going and talking to my boss about trying to be able to attend one because I, I think it would be really cool to be surrounded by uh, people talking about the kinds of things I'm super interested in. Yeah, I mean, also one really interesting thing that this conference is doing that's pretty unique is they have sort of speed networking, they have book signings. They give you a really good opportunity to meet other people. Um, I've been to conferences in the past where um, it was just very, very technical and um it was designed for you to go. It was designed for one-way communication, right? For you to go and listen to some talks. Um, but this is really designed for you to interact and meet other professionals, which is really cool. Um, so definitely check it out. Um, you can get 25% off your pass if you use the code PT25. Um, I believe if you use the, the link, oscon.com slash PT, you'll also get the discount, but put the code in just in case. And um, yeah, hope to see you there. Yeah, so with all of these languages, uh, you know, adopting a lot of these principles from functional programming, where do you see the whole ecosystem going? Like, do you see um, some of these languages sort of collapsing um, together? Or do you see there's maybe going to be, you know, sort of an explosion of new ideas? You know, I always kind of wonder 
um, if there be some type of contraction, because a lot of the features will just, you know, things will just become homogeneous over time. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't see it becoming more homogeneous. Like I only see it becoming more heterogeneous, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like uh, just um, like the, the number of people developing software continues to grow. And like, I don't know if this has to do with, with functional programming at all, but like, as you were saying before, like if you're writing a, a service that, that other people are calling in some sort of grander architecture, like, you know, you could write it in whatever language you want, as long as you agree on the protocol. Um, so we're, you know, in some ways we're in a, we're in like the Cambrian explosion of, of languages. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't see that going away. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the table stakes are higher for a new programming language, right? Like you can't just write, uh, like a compiler, um, you know, people expect package managers and they expect like code oh, linters. Really yeah. Is there, I guess Scala has SBT, right? For the package management? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, there's still not a good, uh, Patrick, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think there's a good package manager for C++. Nope. Uh, I know there's Hunter, but uh, it's not even that popular. There are a few, but they don't, con- I've never found one that had enough critical mass of packages to be useful. Yep, exactly. Yeah, there's Conan. Uh, there's actually one from Microsoft. It's, I think it's like VC. I don't remember, but, but um, yeah, you're right. None of them um, can really get everyone on board. I, I mean, it seems like I can understand. I mean, it sounds incredibly difficult. I think like maybe you guys uh, disagree or something, but like, so C++ just existed before the idea that like languages should have should have a package manager um, like was an important idea, right? And I think that there's these stops along the road, right? Like I think Go kind of put down its feet on like having a way to format your code easily, and that like languages, you know, after Go are all going to have that. Like it's such a good idea, but but you know, languages before that, people are too busy fighting in their PRs about whether you should format it this way or that way. Yeah, like, that's right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I wonder. Uh... Um, I really wonder what's going to happen. I, I do think that, okay, so to your point with Docker, with, you know, services, sort of service-oriented architecture, um, that really gives people flexibility to um, write any language they want. Um, but I feel like the system is inherently winner-take-all as well. Um, mm. you know, and, and again, I think there's going to be, always going to be a lot of languages. I just wonder whether the distribution concentration will just, you know, favor a few languages. Like, I think, you know, Python, you know, we, we do mostly Python at where I work now. Um, you know, we use the typing module and all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely better languages. Um, but I feel like there's this sort of winner-take-all effect. Um, although, although to, to sort of play devil's advocate against that, um, TensorFlow recently added support for Swift, and mm-hmm. so that I think is a game changer for a lot of people, um, you know, doing machine learning and people in AI. Yeah, um, I had on my podcast uh, Brian Cantrell, and he did this great presentation, and we talked about it about software values. I think it was called. So he he uh, was a big proponent of like the Node.js ecosystem, and had kind of a falling out with them. And he kind of thought about this a lot and decided that like what matters with programming languages is sort of like uh, like where they put their values and that it leads to like a different system. So like uh, like Node.js kind of put a lot of importance on just being accessible, like people being able to pick it up. Um, and I think when he wanted some more, you know, thought that there should be some more complex features that would build more robust software then they were like, well, that would be great, but that would take away from accessibility, right? And, and I work on Scala, which has a reputation for being very complex. And I think Rust also has and Haskell. Yep, yep. So like, um, I feel like that's the decision space, like as a language, right? Do you want to be like, do you, do you favor this being an easy language for people to take up? Do you favor that this is a language that's, that's more reliable or more secure? I mean, performance is probably another... Um, aspect but there, there's all these values right and i think languages kind of pick and choose uh where they fall like c obviously has some very specific you know performance and, and memory usage constraints on it that, that will be more important than anything else yeah that makes sense is there um is, so 
is there a uh, in the functional programming landscape is there sort of a Pareto front there like are there um, reasons to use Haskell versus Scala that involve you know I guess performance or um, is there is there some uh, speciality that that uh, Haskell is like particularly good at? Yeah, so one thing that is interesting about Haskell is that is it is lazy. It has a lazy evaluation model, and I don't know, I don't know any other languages that have that. So besides all its its functional aspects, it has this lazy aspect, which um, can can be challenging, but has uh, benefits in certain cases. Scala, I think, is great um, be- when you want to use the JVM. Um, because like you're not going to run into like hey uh, like I literally had this problem with Haskell before where I needed to interact with this like SOAP web service um, and they're like yeah don't do that like, I think that was their <laughs> where if you're in in Java like if you're on the JVM that's never going to be a problem yeah um, I mean, there's just so much so many billions of lines of code that have been written yeah I don't know if that answers your question though yeah that makes sense yeah I think. Um, yeah, the lazy evaluation, just to kind of give people more depth on that, um, because it actually it's supported in, in um, it's, it's, not, it's not part of Python by any means, but the, if you're using TensorFlow or PyTorch or any of these uh, GPU tensor processing libraries, they're doing lazy evaluation. And what that means is, you know, imagine you have a program that, uh, you know, it reads a number from the command line, um, you know, it adds four, it doubles it, and then it uh, returns it, right? So uh, it prints it to the screen, let's say. So when you when you do the add for and the double, um, that doesn't really change. I mean, it changes some memory on your computer, but you don't really notice anything until you do something with that number, like print it. So what what a what a program could do is it could just keep kind of like a ledger of what what it, what you said it should do. So you said, oh, you want to, uh, I forgot what I said. I think add four. You want to add four? Okay, I'll make a note of that. You want to double this number? Okay, I'll make a note of that. Um, And then when you go to print it to the screen, then it goes back through its ledger. And it says, okay, what operations do I need to do? And so, you know, this is a very simple example. But imagine if you did that operation to two numbers and only printed one of them. Well, then it doesn't have to do that operation on the other number, which is just going to get thrown away. It only has to do half of the work. Um, that's a that's a big reason to use ledgers is the pruning. But by far the biggest reason is that a lot of, there's a lot of latency, especially if you're doing anything on the GPU. Like you have to take information that's on your motherboard, and you have to send it over to this this PCI uh, card, right? And that that takes time, right? So you can send a ton of information, but it just takes time to get there. Um, and so by batching up all of these commands, you can send, you know, 100 commands instead of one command. And even though there might be 100 times as many things to do, again, it's a latency issue, not a, not a bandwidth issue. So you get, you get a huge speed up by doing that. And Haskell has that, has that basically baked into the language. Yeah. And like, so Scala has laziness as well and like a... Uh call by name is, is what they call it, but it's not the, the default. So it is a very powerful paradigm, as you're saying. Um, having it as the default, um, like I think that's confusing for people who aren't familiar with it. That is not, you yeah. expect a program to work by starting with the first line and then executing through the bottom, whereas you're describing uh, in a lazy world, it's kind of like it goes all the way to the bottom, building up its computation and then kind of runs it by backtracking through what, what it needs to do. Yep, yep. And so a lot of these languages or, or platforms will have sort of a immediate mode where, for example, let's say you're developing and you need to know the value. Maybe you have a variable that you're just stepping through with the debugger, um, but you're not actually even using it. You still need to know kind of at every line of the code what that value is. Um, you know, maybe just you have all this computation and at the end you get not a number, right? That's really hard <laughs> to debug. Um, so with immediate mode, you can kind of step through and say, oh, this is the exact line where things kind of went south. Um, so it's totally possible. Uh, and so in a way, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get this immediate mode when you need it, which is a little slower. Um, think of it as sort of um, 
features, which we, we didn't talk about yet, but we get to, um, that are resolved right away. And then you also have this lazy mode, which is much faster. Yeah, and the, um, like, I think from like a theoretical CS perspective, like the lazy evaluation mode will always be at worst, take as much time as the eager mode, um, because in, you know, it can, but it can be faster because steps could be deemed unnecessary. But um, it can have a tremendous uh, memory overhead. Like if you're in Haskell and you want to, you know, maybe they would say just don't do this. But let's say that you were like summing a whole bunch of numbers, but because of the way you did it, um, it is following kind of the default lazy style. Um, and you're passing around that result number. But the result number, in fact, it's not a memory location of an int. It's actually a giant computation of like add one plus two plus three plus four mm-hmm. so um the calculations will end up being the same but until that's evaluated you know they have these kind of space leaks where you end up holding on to a whole bunch of memory without really meaning to yeah that's a that's a really really good point um just in general these higher order languages um will will have sort of traps so i think of it more like uh you can think of it as like using a machete or using, uh, you know, like a chainsaw, right? Like the chainsaw <laughs> can do a lot more. It can be really quick, but also you kind of have to develop some some more skill to use it. Um, and uh, and I think that's that's uh, it's a good way to sort of learn is to dive in there. You write this program and you realize, oh, why is this taking you know an hour to run? Um, and then there's you know there's a bunch of really good tooling for all of these languages to step through and say, oh, I see why it's happening because I'm building this huge computation graph of, of uh, all of this mathematics I'm applying when really I should at some point um, uh, just realize all of that computation. I think they call that checkpointing. You should checkpoint the computation so that it you know, collapses that whole call graph and then you can start again. Yeah, and what I'm describing is probably like a very much a beginner uh mistake to not realize that you're they're chaining around this computation yeah but yeah what about um oh so by the way you you asked me like hey when should you choose which which functional programming language Mm -hmm. um so i'm gonna say you know always choose scala because that's my favorite (laughs) 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 but but i think in in practicality like you know a, a language like haskell or something is a great place to learn about all these FP concepts. But if you need to do real world stuff, like I said, if you need to talk to some soap thing or something, you know, the JVM is a good place to be. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you're at a company or you're doing some software task now in a different language, um, one thing everyone can take away from this podcast is to, you know, realize how to do functional programming in that language. Um, and so just to enumerate a lot of this, I mean, if you're in C, you can use. Um, Folly Future. Actually, Patrick, you might know of other alternatives to that. The only one I've ever used is uh, Folly Future, um, but th- there's probably a hundred other ones that basically give you this uh, async await type type paradigm. Um, you know, if you're in in, uh, in in Scala or Haskell or something like that, that's very natural. Um, if you're in Java, um, there's got to be some good libraries but you're going to be creating a lot of objects so get ready for <laughs> for uh, you know yeah a ton of objects um other language oh yeah if, i mean if you're doing anything like node.js um or even if you're doing react uh or, or javascript in the browser definitely look at you know the await async libraries in node um i think there's rxjs in the browser uh mm-hmm. but before we enumerate all of them look up like uh it would either be you know reactive programming, functional programming. Um, there's there's a way to do it in every language, and depending on the task you're trying to do, it could be really powerful. So um, definitely you know dive into that, um, and and it's something really good to understand. And and types right if if you're doing React stuff, I don't know maybe TypeScript or f- yep. Flow or you know uh, and another keyword I'd call out is like algebraic data types which. Uh, more languages are getting support for, but is a nice way to kind of build data structures. Yeah, that's one thing that drives me absolutely crazy about TensorFlow and PyTorch is they just have the tensor data type. So if I have mm-hmm. a tensor that's... Sometimes I've done this where um, 
I have a tensor that's, um, let me make sure I get this right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So I have a tensor that's, let's say, 5 by 1. So it's, it's a vector, right? And then I multiply by another tensor that's 5 by 1. So what that's going to do is it's going to multiply those two vectors, and that's going to be, uh, do a dot product. So um, under the hood, it's going to uh, you know, multiply you know, component-wise, add that all up, and I'll get a single number out. So maybe I do this vector times vector, or this, you know, they're calling it tensor times tensor, and my output is three, right? But if I get the dimensions wrong, like let's say I, one of those two vectors is transposed. So now I have a five by one matrix multiplied by one by five matrix. Well, what mm -hmm. TensorFlow is going to do is it's going to do the outer product. So my result isn't going to be three or 10 or 100. It's going to be a five by five matrix. And nothing warns you about that. So, so you can just easily um, you know, get blown up because sometimes you know, we have these huge vectors and we multiply them together. Maybe it's a million items and we expect them to output a number, but what ends up happening is outputs this million by million matrix and you can't <laughs> even fit that matrix. So your graphics card blows up, right? <laughs> and it's just, that just, that's what just absolutely drives me crazy. They are, uh, there is something coming out in TensorFlow called named tensors. Uh, it's not out yet, but, um, you know, I think to your point, I mean, it's, it's moving in the direction of sort of algebraic types. So, I mean, I think the holy grail there is where you have unit types you can define, like you could say seconds S equals 10 microseconds and it would do the conversion automatically, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so like a, a different holy grail is like, if you've actually would encode the size of your matrix into the type. So yep. I've seen this, I've seen this uh, done in a couple languages. Uh, so an example uh, in uh, the Idris programming language is actually like he has this function to transpose a matrix. And the way he defines a matrix is uh, it's like matrix and it has two like type parameters that is like the n by n size, right? So he has a function that takes in a matrix that is size n by m. Maybe those are hard to say over audio. I by j, let's say. <laughs> nice. And then it returns it like j by i, right? Um, so by by the by encoding that kind of dimension into the type, you can actually understand that that is a transpose function, like without even understanding the body of it, right? You can see just by that, that these two variables move, that it's actually kind of rotating the matrix. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and if, if, if you do, um, you know, if you multiply these vectors and you set that equal to a floating num point number, then the type system could know, okay, there's only certain multiplication, uh, matrix multiplication operations that can yield just one number, right? And, yeah. And, and so it would catch that compile time. Yeah, and your example of, yeah, re exactly, returning, like, instead of a float, some giant matrix. If the type system had that information, yeah, it would be a compile time error. You would never even send it off to run. Yep, yep. Yeah, I, uh, I'm also a huge fan of TypeScript. Um, the one thing, uh, it, was, it was really hard to set up, uh, but, but to be fair, I was trying to go for the holy grail. I, I did get it eventually, uh, but what I got was, what, what I wanted was... Um, Basically, the servers and TypeScript running uh, Express. The client was running React, also in TypeScript, and both of them support hot reloading. So, uh -huh. so what that means is you can edit a source file, hit save, and your, your server changes underneath. Uh, on the client side, every time you hit save, it refreshes the browser and it's, it's up to date. Um, I posted two or three months ago, I posted from Hacker Moon uh, an article on how to do it. Um, it was definitely a lot of work, but it was totally worth it. Um, I think if you're going to build a website, that is that is the way to go. And as you said, you get the type safety, which is which is actually really important. It's, it saved me multiple times. Yeah, everybody who everybody who whom I've heard talk about move a large JS uh, code base to TypeScript has talked about like oh there was a couple bugs that we didn't know about that it just called out. And like obviously they're not very prominent bugs because they would have already got to them, but but like you know if you were developing it in TypeScript, they they never would have even been there. Yep, yep, that's right. 
And it just helps new people too who are looking at the code base. Um, it's very hard to dive into the middle of a code base and know what's going on. But the type system is really sort of your dictionary um, that 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 you can kind of carry with you as you're going, kind of diving through all of the code. Yeah, I love that. Like you know, uh, maintainability when you have a lot of types. Like you know, we use types quite extensively in our Scala code bases, probably in ways that would be unusual to people but like when you can go in and say i want to move this here and you kind of can move it and then see what breaks and then slowly you know work those changes through as opposed to like you know some ruby or python code base where you better have good code coverage and some great reviews like uh, mm -hmm. the differences are are astounding so one thing before we jump i want to jump in and talk talk about your uh, your podcast and other things that you're trying to uh, other things that you're working on, but real quick, how do you keep people from your team from creating like crazy Scala operators? Because <laughs> I've seen uh, in our code base some unbelievable operators. I honestly thought they were those emoji, you know, those those five letter <laughs> long, uh, you know, like emojis, uh, or they're flipping the table or something. Yeah, how do you keep people from abusing the language? Well. I guess those are two different questions. We haven't had the operator uh, the operator problem. Um, maybe that has to do with personal uh, tastes of people on the team. I think that there was like um, a while where that that happened, like in this in the community of Scala, that it was common to write custom operators uh, for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I I think that maybe that's not the case anymore. But yeah. I also think it's a case where like if you get used to an operator. Um, then you love it, like you find it easier to understand than than a word. Or but but if you're not used to it, it's very confusing. I feel like it's a little bit like like Vim. Like I use Vim key bindings and IntelliJ, and uh, like now that I know the bindings and everything, like it's like amazing. But you know, before I knew it, it was like super confusing, and I was like, why would anyone use this? <laughs> yeah, right. I went through the same thing. Uh, you know, being a machine learning person, I know Emacs because that's that's what they taught us in in AI class, but. But yeah, I remember the first time the professor forced us all to use Emacs. I was like, <laughs> what are you doing to us? It's like control S to search. What's going on? But then over time, you realize uh, not taking your hands off the keyboard is pretty nice. Yeah. So I think that operators, like it's great that you can do operator overloading. You should only really do it if it's something that's going to be like that. Like you're just going to, you're not going to have to look up what it is. Like if, it, if it's going to be muscle memory for your team, like, oh yeah, of course this means combine two lists together and then increment everything by one <laughs> i don't know that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right <laughs> yeah yeah i think and then one thing that tricks trips people up to is the underscore for arguments oh, yeah. that that don't matter because like if you see uh so, so just to give people some context um if you have a function and um um let me sure i get this right function takes sort of let's say two arguments but the first argument you're not using you could put an underscore just to say, hey, I know there's supposed to be something here, but it, it's, it's irrelevant, instead of putting the word dummy or something like that. Um, but then what can happen is you can end up with like open paren underscore plus underscore close paren. And people look <laughs> at that and think that that's one whole operator, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, which ties into your other question, right? Like how do you, like uh, Scala is a very uh, flexible language. Mm -hmm. And then so how do you restrict you know what people do because you can do more than that with underscore because it, it, you can refer to it right so you could have a function that is like bracket underscore comma underscore bracket and then like arrow and then underscore dot one and underscore dot two <laughs> yeah, like that's right i mean uh so i think that that is a harder question right like how do you uh i mean i think the same is probably true of c plus plus to an even greater extent like the language is so large you have oh, to yeah. kind of as a team uh, reach kind of some sort of consensus, yep. but in Scala, like we use linters and code formatters and kind of enforce things in the build, and that that's great. Like uh, something like in, instead of arguing about code formatting, like in PRs, we have uh, a config that that kind of dictates what our code formatting will look like. And if you want to argue about it, you could just make a change to that and then argue in that PR where it, it reformats everything to the new standard which yep. is just great at removing the diversion of arguing about code formatting. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the days of you know, people arguing over spaces and things like that. I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable. And now, I mean, even C++, every language has um, 
some type of way to automatically format. And that takes so many of these arguments off the table. It's like, if you don't like the formatting, you could even reformat the whole code base and then just format it back when you go submit your PR. I mean, if you're that into it. But but, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think some of the more semantic uh, things are just handled in the in the peer review. So we have this we have this sort of meme we call Clown Town, and so I think it comes <laughs> from The Simpsons, but I don't watch The Simpsons, so so someone will have to correct me on that. Um, um, but yeah, there's basically this 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 uh, um, emoji we have of Krusty the Clown, and so yeah, when something's getting kind of clowny, we we put Krusty on it. So if someone has a pound define that creates a class in C++, you know, they get crusty. And uh, and that's that's the way we sort of enforce it. <laughs> we have a bike shed emoji for when people start fighting about dumb things. <laughs> oh, really? Wait, what is a bike shed? I don't even know. Um, I think it, it goes back to this old story that says, like, you know, that they were building a nuclear reactor and they had a committee to, like, oversee all the plans. And then the committee spent all their time arguing about the color of the bike shed because, like, <laughs> the idea was that the people on the committee didn't know anything about nuclear reactors, but they understood bike sheds. So they're like, that's what they focused in oh. on and argued about. So it's kind of like you're, you're, you're missing the, you're focusing on the, the wrong thing here. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I, I noticed that uh, um, well, you know, there's it takes a certain personality to to invent an entire framework or library or even programming language, and so you have to be sufficiently dissatisfied with the status quo, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, when you when you get a lot of programming language inventors or or platform inventors together, you end up with a lot of contrarian uh, opinions. And then, yeah, I think I, I need to borrow that bike shed emoji. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You can have too many divas or I don't know what the right <laughs> yeah, word is. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your podcast. So it's co-recursive. Um, do you, uh, is it purely recursive programming or is it just, is it, is it more general? What's a, what's the sort of topic? So, um, it is not purely about recursion. Um, so the the show is uh, an interview format, um, and so it is a, a software development podcast. And um, if I'm curious about uh, a subject, say, you know, similar to this a- episode, or if I want to know about TensorFlow or some new programming language, I, I find an expert in that area and bring them on and and kind of have them explain that area to me, and, and I'm. I ask questions and I'm hopefully not afraid to to say like I don't understand. Could you explain that again? Um, and so the that that is the format. It's kind of a deep dive onto a technical area, uh, an interview at a time. There's been a lot of shows on areas of functional programming, shows on building your own programming language, uh, shows on Rust, incident response, kind of a, a wide swath of topics. But um, cool. The, I I just picked the name because. Um, uh, well, it, uh, a co-recursive function is something that kind of produces a stream of values. So it's kind of like a pun in that I'm producing a stream of episodes. But, <laughs> All right. But really, nice. uh, it's just the name that's uh, distinctive. So what inspired you to get into podcasting? Um, so I was uh, listening to a lot of tech podcasts, and I, I thought that there was certain topics that I would love to have covered that, that I didn't really see being covered. And originally, I reached out to this podcast, uh, SE Daily, to see if he would cover some of these topics. And he said, well, why don't you try like just doing guest hosting for the show? And uh, I did that once or twice, and then I just found that it's a lot of fun. Um, like I like to be able to talk to people about software. And so, uh, yeah, can't, can't stop now. <laughs> cool. That's awesome. Well, I'll have to make you a trade, and I can, I can come on your show. You want to talk about yeah. uh, any machine learning stuff? That would be awesome. Cool. And can people catch you on uh, like what sort of social media are you, uh, you know, most prevalent on? Yeah. So definitely, you know, check out the podcast at coRecursive.com. Uh, if you, you know, Google Adam Gordon Bell, you'll find me. I'm on Twitter at at Adam Gordon Bell and also at coRecursive. And uh, yeah. Cool. So if people want to reach out to you, they uh, do you support uh, DMs on Twitter or should they email you through the website? How can people get a hold of you? Yeah, you can DM me through Twitter. You can email me uh, adam at corecursive.com. And uh, yeah, 
check out the podcast. I think it's super interesting. If, if you liked this episode uh, and you need more podcasts, I think it's probably a good fit. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we get a lot of people saying, hey, why don't you do more episodes? Um, um, but, uh, but, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of really good producers out there creating a lot of great content. And, uh, and Patrick and I also have uh, a lot of kids. So <laughs> I think we'll stick to one episode a month. And, uh, um, and, and yeah, if you're interested in, in knowing more about um, really a lot of these topics that, uh, you know, that we're all interested in, but especially your recursion, uh, functional programming, things like that. Um, you know, Adam does this literally every day. Uh, he's very passionate about it. And you, should, you should check out his podcast and, and hit him up on Twitter. All right. So thanks a lot for coming on the show, Adam. I really appreciate it. This is an awesome episode. I think we really dove deep on functional programming. Um, if people still have questions, don't hesitate to email us. You can also ping Adam. You can email both of us. Um, but I think we will hopefully we cleared up you know a lot of the mystery around functional programming because it is something that's really difficult to to dive into. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.